This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Scandal of Reading podcast. In this season, we are discussing the fruits of the Spirit. In this episode in particular, I discuss love. By discussing Revelations of Divine Love by Julian of Norwich, and I discuss the book with the medievalist Grace Hammond, the author of Jesus Through Medieval Eyes. Grace and I relish this opportunity to get to dive deeply into Julian's work But trying to keep the conversation in only 30 minutes means that we did not go as deep as we would have wanted to. I encourage all of you to pick up a copy of Julian Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. For years, I have used Elizabeth Spearing's translation published by Penguin and recently have discovered Father John Julian's translation with Paraclete Press, which I highly recommend. We are so excited to be discussing the virtues. I hope that it has been a benefit for everyone who's been listening. So far, we've had great conversations with Grace Hammond about Julian of Norwich and love and talking to Philip Yancey about patience and the life of John Donne and his poetry. And I recently just finished a conversation with Daniel Neary, who wrote Everything Sad is Untrue. I thought it was such a phenomenal book. I could not wait to have him on. He was really one of those people that Um, I could have just talked about his book. I could have talked about the autobiographical novel that he wrote. And instead, we, you know, on this podcast are always talking about something outside of the writer's own work and what are some of the works that inspired him. And he chose Calvin and Hobbes. So Good choice. I wanted, yeah, right? So I wanted to kind of throw this at you guys because we had a great conversation that could have continued. You know, we were talking about Calvin and Hobbes and really talked about the goodness of the artist. Bill Watterson, what does it look like to be a good artist who feels driven to do the right thing in their work? But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of cash to be made if Bill Watterson had chosen that route and allowed Calvin and Hobbes to become kitsch and be able to sell his work. And and then also, I think the question of goodness for the artist, you know, he's writing comics. I mean, is that is that being a good artist to, to write comics when obviously he's a philosophically deep thinker and he could have written philosophy and he, he chose this route. Is that good art? So I would just love to start a conversation along those lines. Um, maybe you guys have some input on Calvin and Hobbes if you're big readers or not uh, on that too. I love Calvin and Hobbes. Um, I have the uh, the four volume nice collection that my mom got that for me for my birthday, which was sort of full circle from having a couple, just a couple volumes as a kid. So they're in, we have books, piles in different rooms in our house. And so Calvin and Hobbes is in a couple different rooms, including a part of our house called the chill room. So I'm always happy when I come and see my kids just flipping through. And I will say I had a recent uh, diocesan meeting uh, and it was a budget meeting and the treasurer uh, inserted on the slides uh, panels from Calvin and Hobbes that really kind of no illustrated sort of of like the boredom of budgeting at from time to time. So it brought a lot of humor and levity to the meeting. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I think those, uh, those are, it's a legitimate form of art. Obviously it's a great, as you know, right. That's obviously a great, uh, a great text, um, great character. And it speaks to, uh, speaks to the heart of both young and old. You know, I think about what, what makes good art and how that connects with profitability. Um, I mean, I, I think it does 
push us deep into kind of questions of our of our motives. Um, but it's also it also strikes me as the sort of thing that an artist or a writer is ha- has to constantly negotiate. It's not a sort of um, philosophical stance that you settle on early on in, in your writing career or writing endeavor, and then it's sort of settled. It feels like the sort of tension that you're wrestling with constantly and having to discern and having to process through. So those are my initial sort of thoughts. Austin, I'd love to hear you weigh in. And then Jessica, I would, I mean, I'm very curious to hear, you know, as you, w- what you think about this um, uh, as a writer who, um, who has multiple volumes out in the, in the world. I think that it has a lot to do with the the catalyzing impulse being that you really feel like you have something to say and to share that's uh, burning and that you have to get out. And I don't think that the form or the medium matters for whether it's good or credible art. I think that it's about uh, what it is and why it is that you were trying to convey the thing that you're, you're, you're trying to convey. And, um, I, I, I think that, that, that therefore, um, there are some things that can be just mercenary. I think that there can moment that, that occur to folks that are particularly successful in any type of an art form where, uh, there is of course a profit motive that, um, that becomes a catalyst to just keep producing. We sort of touched on this last season in a conversation that we'd had, I remember, um, but uh, I think that provided that the artist has uh, a perspective or an idea or something that, that, that he or she are compelled to share or compelled to say uh, is, is where good art ultimately comes from. Um, and I think you can oftentimes see that in the body of somebody's work, too. I, it's not always obvious, but I think sometimes when you read the work of folks that have really just had a prodigious you know output you can oftentimes feel a sense of 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 burning underneath the ones that sing and that are really connecting the uh where where the soul's crying out to the soul so to speak and others that might functionally and technically be good but it just feels like it's missing a little something and um it's not always discernible but i think that it oftentimes is and i think that that has something uh to say to whether art and in, in, in that standpoint is actually good art or not. Yeah, I was at Rabbit Room speaking in mid-October and Russ Ramsey, who wrote Rembrandt and the Wind, gave a presentation from this new book he's working on and it was on Thomas Kincaid. And so he was having the conversation, you know, there's art that you do because you're driven by it the way Austin just talked about. Then there's the art you have to do to pay for you to have mm-hmm. the time to do the art mm-hmm. that you're driven to do. And so for Kincaid, I think part of it was he started with this certain kind of mission. And, you know, theologically, Russ points out all the ways that that mission was was not good um, because he didn't have sound doctrine when he was creating his art. And therefore, it led to the kind of sentimentalized, romanticized art that actually can lead its viewers astray from the gospel. But his intentions were there as an artist first. And then it became what took over was the impulse to make the art that was just paying the bills. And that became the driving uh, factor, right? That was the catalyst to use your language, Austin. So, So there's always a concern. I mean, you look at Bill Watterson, he did 10 years and just had to stop because the comic was like eating up his whole life. 
he had something to say and he had something that he loved, but it became such a compulsion to get the message out. You know, so here you have these two very vastly opposed, almost tragic stories of these artists, one who survived Bill Watterson and one who died, it literally killed him, Kincaid. One was driven to make sure he made the money to support what he originally had was a message and the other message and then had to stop or he knew it was going to kill him and, and gave up the money it could have made. So it's just interesting to have these like stories of these artists and, and what it can look like and then trying to wrestle through that each each ourselves, you know. Well, I think, too, something that you just touched on that I think is helpful to pull out, too, is that there's a difference in the question of what is good art and then as Christians, what is art that we feel like is pointing to the goodness of the gospel? Because I think that there is absolutely good art that rings as true and reflective of something about reality and human nature, uh, just the complexity of the world that we live in, that is decidedly not by somebody who has either religious in general or Christian in particular convictions, but that is good art. And and one of those things that we as Christians um, uh engaging with that art, I think, are blessed by is that it is a powerful apprehension of reality that then we, with our Christian convictions, come to it and are able to kind of interpret it through that lens. But those are two separate questions of what is kind of good uh, good art in the sense that it, that, that, that it is decidedly done to try to point toward uh, the, the, the Christian gospel and what is good art that we as Christians uh, can engage with to help us better understand why we think Christianity is uh, the, 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 the truest um, uh, account of reality. Well, and I think my, my question is like a third level to that, Austin. I'm asking, what is the goodness of the artist? What's the moral imperative for the artist to be good that also allows them to be an artist, right? They can still make a profit. How much, how do you balance the making of the profit and the making of the art for the people with this compulsion that maybe points beyond this world and points to something um, that we're longing for, you know, there's, which may not be understood and may not sell. And, you know, you have those questions, I think for a lot of writers and Claude's nodding his head. So I, I'd love to hear you weigh in on this, Claude. I mean, I think that's a real question. I think so. I mean, it, I also I also recall now at this point, just how many writers, you know, create a novel or a work of theology or nonfiction. And it's, it's only successful many years later after their death. Um, and so that's when that's when the question of sort of like viability comes into play and they just sort of skated along in, you know, poverty and or obscurity uh, for for their writing career. Um, but they they saw their work as meaningful. And so they did what they could to offer it to the world. So I think a lot about the idea of our writing as being a gift, you know, can how can we offer these gifts to our readers and to the world? And if we center that perspective, then the question of profit and, 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 you know, how do we sustain ourselves, um, is, is not unimportant, but it's, it's secondary, you know, to, to this desire to say, Hey, this is, this is a gift. God has given me a gift. Um, I'm, I've worked hard to cultivate this gift and now I have, I have joy in this gift and I want to offer this, this novel, this poem, this collection, whatever. Um, and, 
you know, I, I do hope ends will be will be will be met and made so I can continue. But this is the offering that I'm going to give and um, and then letting letting the Lord sort from there. Did y'all ever read the Nicola Krauss book, uh, A History of Love or The History of Love? It came no. out, I don't know, 2005, 2008, something like that. It, it has stuck with me for years that there's this 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 book that this uh, gentleman writes that is called The History of Love or A History of Love. I hadn't read it in years and so didn't think I was going to be talking about it. So you have to go check me, folks who are listening to this. But it's just this obscure book that, as I recall it, 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 it didn't have wide publication or anything like that. And all these years later, somebody for whom it's meaningful stumbles upon it at the end of her life. And uh, the only reason I mention it is to say that I think about it a lot as as somebody who who uh, who who does uh, try to write and as somebody who's who's a pastor and preaches and um, that that theologically speaking, I think there's something significant about being a person trying to, to make art of any kind of of a trust that if it's done uh faithfully for for the reasons of trying to advocate for God's kingdom come in whatever way, shape, or form that's being done, to then trust that ultimately it is being held in the, the, the mind of God and that it that it will show up when and to whom uh it, it at different times that that it either should or I guess I guess another way of putting that is the parable of the the the, the farmer plants the seed, the rains come night and day, it it grows he or she knows not how. Um, and I think that's one of the important things, too, about art from a decidedly Christian perspective is. And it's not to say that one can't hope that it's successful. Obviously, any of us who have written books want people to read it. But I think there's also something that says that while that is the hope, it is enough to know that this is out there in the world, that I think I've said what I intended and wanted to say, and that uh, it will therefore I can trust that it is going to be found at the times and by the folks uh, for whom it really needs to be found. And the reason that book, uh, History of Love, is so powerful is it's it's after like literally decades, like 50 years later. I mean, this book has been forgotten about and it just kind of shows up and not to then become like a bestseller just in this one instance for this person who really needs it. Uh, and so, Claude, when you talk about things having a life after the fact, you know, as people who are, are Christians trying to trying to create, uh, we also have the, um, the, the ability to say, well, even if we don't see what's happening with 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 what we're doing now, who knows what uh, what what might happen to it years and years from now? I feel like we could talk about this question forever, and this is kind of what happens in the Nairi interview that hopefully everyone stays tuned and listen to. Is I just wanted to respect our listeners' time, and I had to wrap it up, but I think that we could have talked much longer. So I hope people stay tuned and and listen, and also fill in comments, send us comments and questions, or in your own thoughts on this, because this is a question that is not answered once and then done. Um, but the question of how writers write to sell without selling out is probably a continual question that has to be reconsidered again and again. I am excited about this conversation. When I told my assistant that I was going to interview Danielle Nairi, she goes, stop. <laughs> she could not believe that was going to be on here. So I am excited. I will let Daniel introduce himself to listeners because I would probably go on and on, but I am going to at least hold up his books for those who are on YouTube. Um, 
and then we can highlight them as we go. But mostly we're going to be talking about something completely different today, which we'll get to in a second. So Daniel, would you introduce yourself to listeners? Sure. Well, my name is Daniel Nayeri. Um, I'm from Iran and came to this country when I was uh, about eight to Oklahoma, best state in the union. Uh, then went to school in New York. I've been an editor for 20 years. I've written uh, a lot of books. The kind of books I write are kind of what I would describe as, as I'm not against quirky. Quirky gets a bad rap. Yeah. I'm into quirky, uh, quirky fairy tale, a little bit weird, um, very much bent on historical research. I love, uh, you know, sort of stories set in a particular place and time in history. I often write uh, in that particular time in history in sort of the Middle East, what might be thought of in some people's minds as the whole like Silk Road era, gigantic era, but let's go mm -hmm. with it. Um, so I tend to write that sort of stuff. Um, what they, they might know me, I also have written an autobiographical um, book, which is sort of the one that uh, uh, I suppose met for the, with the best response. And it was about my coming to this country as a refugee with my mother and sister. And, mm -hmm. um, and that sort of goes back four generations in Iran and kind of, again, touches on the mythologies and mm -hmm. the, the storytelling of my culture, which is, as you can see, kind of my, my bag. I like that stuff. Um, other than that, yeah, I, these days I'm writing films as well. So kind of a storyteller by trade. Uh, what else should we know about me? I'm married. I have a, a, a delightful wife and one son. I like German board games. I like English motorcycles. I cook constantly. Uh, you got to save me here, Jessica, because I'll just keep Yeah, I was going to say, Germ well, German board games. I didn't even know the Germans played board games, so... Come now, we're going to have to talk about this. There, there, uh, there's actually in the work. Now we have to talk about this. After Settlers of Catan, what happened oh. was what board gamers called the German invasion. Just a, a bunch of uh, PhDs in mathematics who designed board games in Germany, where it is culturally much more uh, significant as a pastime, uh, came over um and and gave us a bunch of what is sort of known as the new era of board games They're wow amazing. wow i did not know it. that no i think i mean i'm still in the era of let's play scrabble so you're... my goodness we got to work on this <laughs> <laughs> professor wilson what are we talking about uh no air klaus teuber Er, dr Knizia. these are some of the, the 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 mount rushmore of modern board games See, you're well, you're already quirky. You've already opened up my world to things that are outside of it. So, and I actually discovered your book not knowing it had anything related to faith, your Christian journey, your mom's conversion. I didn't know any of that. Um, people recommended Everything Sad is Untrue to me, and they just kept saying, You can't explain it. You can't explain it. It's just so good. You just can't explain it. And I thought, Well, if you can't explain it, I'm not actually interested. You've said nothing that interests me yet. Right. Um. <laughs> that's that's what i would call anti-hype it's like it's yeah. nothing but lots of people like it but they won't tell you why and you're like well i won't <laughs> yeah that's, that, i mean that was me i get a lot of books i read a lot of books and especially if i'm going to take time to read a new book you got to sell it to me and a friend turned to me and said she quoted you she said christ has died christ has risen christ will come again this whole story hinges on that 
And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> the only part I wrote was that last clause, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but passing passing down the tradition, that's my entire jam is like, what what do we have from before? And then how are artists and writers thinking about what everything came before so they can pass on something else? And your work does that so well. So I appreciated it. We're not going to get to talk about it too much because I think I could talk about that book for an hour and maybe at another time, I'll just do a whole podcast by myself where I just talk about your book. But um, <laughs> for right now, I invited you on because I usually bring writers on to talk about something from the tradition. And I had reached out to Daniel because I wanted to talk about Lord of the Rings. And Daniel said, well, what if we talk about Calvin and Hobbes? Yes. So <laughs> we're going to talk about Calvin and Hobbes. You brought, oh, that's Let's fantastic. talk about the real deal right here. <laughs> it goes on. I love show and tell. This is my jam right here. It goes, there's, <laughs> this is my son's editions. And he, I was like, can I borrow them for this? And he goes, yeah, I dog-eared all the funny ones. <laughs> and he goes, but they're all funny. And I said, great. So I went in and I looked and there's like, <laughs> like more than half the pages are talking. <laughs> That's like, so I great. talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> well, my daughter reads them and then she, and I read them years ago. I mean, I haven't returned to them until right before this podcast. And now I just spent time going through the anniversary edition of it. But, um, but my daughter like reads them out loud to me, like at dinner, she'll reenact them. And that's like our dinner conversation is reenacting Calvin and Hobbes. So just start with that. Why would you want to talk about Calvin and Hobbes? <laughs> well, so if to the segue on everything sad is untrue is the narrator being myself uh, often gets the wrong end of the stick, right? He's often reading something and misunderstanding its purpose. So there's a good chance that I looked at the title of your podcast and grabbed onto scandal more than reading. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and went with and said okay and clicked through saw a lot of a lot of respectable folks um a lot of folks with you know uh a lot of sort of scholarly credentials i'm saying all this non-ironically very sort of respectfully mm -hmm. um talking about the tradition and thinking about the the what i have you know what i the phrase i like the sort of this 500 year delta this idea of like how can we even now be thinking about things that are well, that were significant even 500 years ago, mm -hmm. coming forward 50 years ago, well, now what, uh, 70 years ago with Tolkien. Um, he's, had, he's had quite a, even in my lifetime, and let's, let's just say even the last 20 years, he's had quite a, if rehabilitation isn't the mm -hmm. word, then let's say, let's say at least um, admission to the scholarly uh, mm -hmm. canon in a way that let's, was absolutely not the case when it published. Mm -hmm. um, so we're watching history form and tradition form around Tolkien, much to my delight. I love that people are seeing the seriousness of that work. Um, and so I kind of set my sights on what is the most interesting conversation we could have that thinks about tradition and thinks about it mm -hmm. in the, in the, more recent past. And so I'm going to posit this to you. Is it cool yeah. if I call you Jessica, Professor? What oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, cool. Jessica is 100%. Jessica, the whole thing? All right, cool. Yeah. You got it. Um, um, so I'll posit this to you, Jessica, and, and you can feel free to disagree. I'm, I'm not even sure if I agree with it, but it, I've been taste testing it ever since you emailed. And it's not yet kicked itself out of my palate. So let's... Um, Let's maybe taste it together. I long thought that 
and this isn't even my original thought, but we, you know, we're moving toward a visual culture. Like we get, we get that. We sort of have a sense of this. The death of the novel, of course, that that news is has been greatly exaggerated, but not exactly off the mark. The you know what anyone you talk to might have a different place where they would put, you know, dubiously the term the golden age of the novel somewhere. It's somewhere, and I don't know that many people who would put it at now. That's all. I can, let's start yeah, there. Yeah. It's yeah. It yeah, whatever it is. It ain't now. Um, in terms of let's say cultural influence, in terms of let's say output, uh, innovation mm-hmm. of output, um, expression of uh, the moment, um, mm-hmm. even in terms of the design space of what's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at people like Borges and Calvino as some of the, and even more recently, Bartolome, as people who are like really thinking about how to break the novel, how to, mm-hmm. how to get to the outer reaches of the, uh, of the design space. Okay, in terms of all of those, we still, I mean, there's very few cases to make as to now being those, the high point of any of those categories. Mm-hmm. And so I started to think, and, and, and yet, at the same time, speak to anyone who thinks about graphic novels, speak, speak to anyone who thinks about television, and I'll tell you, the storytelling there is kicking off. It's, mm-hmm. there's, there are people doing things we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. The great books of collegiate study are coming out as we speak. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So, and of course we have this sort of whatever we want to call the internet influence, the YouTubeification of storytelling and culture. Okay. So if we have some very broad terms to say, we have uh, Mm -hmm. the novel at its height. Let's not pinpoint that. We have the novel in its decline. We have the visual storytelling in its ascendancy. And I'm, I'm one of these people who has no, like, I'm, I'm not beefing with any of these things. I'm not, I'm not giving a valence to it. But if I were to teach, have to teach a moment or a class or a speech, mm-hmm. I would pinpoint Calvin and Hobbes as the, as the moment in history. And of course, Calvin and Hobbes is a 10-year run from 1985 to 1995. Very convenient placement. Um, wherein uh, it marks the beginning of the ascendancy of the visual storytelling and and the decline of the novel uh, Mm. in terms of text. And so here's the thesis, here's the thing I posit or ask you is I can't name, and and I have, you know, all these things have exceptions, all these things I was saying, but I, I have trouble naming a decent sized list of novels that come after Calvin and Hobbes that deserve to be placed with the greatest that came before. Mm-hmm. That's the, that is the category of like, that's the assertion. Are there a decent number of novels that come out after 1995? And we, what do we have? We have about 30 years of output here. It's not a small window yeah. that can be placed over here. Notable exceptions. I don't know. I have a lot of books I love. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I have a lot of books I love in the last 30 years. Karen Russell, her entire output is in the last 30 years. And I think she's brilliant. Um, you know, David Mitchell does great work. Mm-hmm. Um, all these people, Cormac McCarthy is probably. I was going to say, Mac- that, and that's the, that's the person I was thinking of right now. I was like, but Cormac McCarthy, like that's. Okay. We'll give, you we'll know? give McCarthy. If McCarthy is the one, <laughs> then the, the thesis is pretty decent that Calvin yeah. and Hobbes marks the moment of, greatness 
when it comes to visual storytelling and its ascendancy. And that's why I picked it. I also picked it for a lot of personal reasons. I love it. I think it's a perfect example of bathos. I think it's a per- mm-hmm. bathos being like this mixture of the silly and the sublime. Calvin mm-hmm. as a narrator is both like a scholarly, you know, his diction is like at yeah. philosopher levels. And then, but every once in a while, he just gets into a biting match with his mm-hmm. tiger. Like he's a perfect um, character of that time. He's a, that is a perfect sort of creative expression of that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I have extreme hyperbolic superlatives to say about what was achieved inside Calvin and Hobbes. And we can dive yeah. into that too. But, but really the reason is where it sits in history. I, mm-hmm. I have trouble as someone who primarily writes novels and loves novels mm-hmm. and wants nothing but good things for the novel. Um, I have trouble seeing Calvin and Hobbes as anything other than its death knell. Yeah. Okay. So I'm wanting to go in so many directions that I wish I had a whiteboard because <laughs> as a teacher, I'm just like, these are the different pockets I'd want to go through. So sure. as you were talking about, Calvin and Hobbes primarily would have started with the attention of children. Of course, now it's something that adults can read as well. And C.S. Lewis would say that's the mark of something that's truly good is that you can read it at all age levels. So even everything sad is untrue. I read it and was so glad that I could listen to it in the car with my kids. And it can be listened to both by children and adults, and it doesn't have to be limited to one age level. So in that sense, Calvin and Hobbes to me seems to fit the bill of what can be called great. Um, It at least has one characteristic. I'm also thinking, did children's literature start to supplant the role of the great literary novels? Because if you think of world-changing fiction, you can think of Harry Potter. So you think of something that's more in a different age level, but it's still bending genres. I mean, people didn't publish it at first, right? Because it seemed too adult and yet children were loving it. And so maybe there's just a whole change in in what we consider readership and what novels are for or or something along those lines. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think Harry Potter is the other, like, really, I think Cormac yeah. and Harry are probably the two best counterexamples. I'm not even sure, you know, it's funny, my my stubborn side would want to argue against them in order to have the cleanest possible thesis. And yet my mm-hmm. other, my rhetorical side would say, let's just eat those as the examples, as the exceptions yeah. and move yeah. on and assert your thesis. So, but I don't disagree. I, you know, Harry Potter is tough for me because um, I was exactly at the wrong age for it. Um, so, you know, it didn't, it didn't necessarily smash into my subconscious the way that maybe Tolkien did. Um, but it's very easy to see that, I mean, in terms of Mm -hmm. influence, it's by far the most influential work of its era. It's by far, you know, in terms of, and, you know, when we try to think about what greatness is, you kind of have to go for influence, innovation, or what we might call like craft, greatness of craft, like Mm -hmm. just brilliance Mm -hmm. of sentence, right? So influence, innovation, and I mean, I, I'd be happy with just those two if we want to just touch those. And I, what about? Well, also, I would say speaking beyond time and place. So, for example, oh, so you can read Calvin Hobbes. Yeah, immortality. Yeah. I want yeah, eyes. Because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the three eyes of greatness. Um, That's going to be And then, a of course, now. does it speak to me, me, me? <laughs> so that would be the fourth eye. Yeah. <laughs> 
I, you know, that's going to become a thing. I mean, it really is. People are going to start teaching that way. The four eyes, according to Daniel Neary. That's right. I, the fourth eye, highly dubious. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. Okay, fine. Let's take it across those three. I'd give two, at best, I'd give two out of three to Harry Potter. I respect it. I, yeah. I, you know, but I don't, I, you know, and again, I'm, I have to admit again here, I'm, a, I'm what we would call a snob in the sense that like, I'm comparing this to Moby Dick. <laughs> like I'm comparing yeah. everything to Moby Dick yeah. and whew, I'm comparing everything to, you know, the stuff so- that people make fun of. Can I ask, so I have to ask a question with that, because you're talking about Calvin and Hobbes, and you're comparing everything to Moby Dick. So, yeah, I, I guess this is my question. In what ways are we, are we pushing things where they would need to go? Or are we speaking to our audience in a different way? And I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. That lowers expectations, that lowers the rigor for the reader, that makes things like there is philosophy in Calvin and Hobbes, but have we had to lower the accessibility through the different kind of storytelling that a comic does versus what Moby Dick does? Oh, well, so look, I have Moby Dick as the best thing people have ever made with their hands. So you're not wrong that it loses, but do I think it's in the conversation? Yeah, I do. And, um, and it's specific. So what we're effectively saying is we, like Harry Potter with uh-huh. uh, with Calvin here, we're saying we can't deny the influence in terms of culture. We immortality, let's put to the side of what it says about the moment, and now we're trying to suss it on this craft element. Mm-hmm. Is it is it just sheer like deep enough? Is the well deep enough? Um, I I would make the case that yes, it would. I mean, there's actually a quote in my out of uh, in my um. I think I have it here in, in everything sad is untrue where this character who is, um, he's this little sort of refugee from Iran. He doesn't know how to read English and he's trying to, uh, learn by reading picture books. And there's this passage where I snuck in one of my, one of these kind of thoughts about Calvin and Hobbes. So let me quickly, it's just a few lines. Um, the first thing I read are comics about Calvin and Hobbes. He is a boy who seems to hate the world as it is and love the world that ought to be. The tiger is his sane mind, which goes to sleep too much so that he never knows what to believe and never knows which world he is in. I like him because he speaks better than a kid. I think Calvin and Hobbes, if read with the kind of rigor that professors read Nabokov, mm-hmm. would see in the work a level of uh, what the postmodernists would call like misprision like a level Mm -hmm. of layered consciousness that um that rivals nabokov's work that Mm -hmm. that in the sense of here we have calvin here's a boy the very first conversation is on its face it looks like a very easy and simple setup which is hobbes is either his imaginary friend who's a tiger who talks speaks to him um you know or he's in this is magic world, all, all fiction is. So he may just be a real tiger. He's like a Toy mm-hmm. Story toy. And um, so Calvin has a secret relationship with him. And then we sort of start to go through and go, no, he clearly, he clearly uh, seems to be, it seems to be about, and you can read this, Bill Watterson's conversation is, he says, um, he says, actually, there's a third option. <laughs> the third option is that 
um, Hobbes is one thing to Calvin and another thing to everyone else. Mm. Um, it's much more about the concept of a subjective reality than about a toy who comes to life. Mm. And you look at this and go, okay, well, we can immediately read these cons this into the conceit really quickly. You have these moments where, for example, Hobbes will do something that Calvin is not aware of. Mm. So clearly, Calvin is not the controller and imaginer of Hobbes. But you also have moments where Calvin is like led into his own flights of fancy all the time. These are the famous like Spaceman Spiff episodes, yeah. the episodes where he's like drawn differently. By the way, like let's take pencil to paper craft, Bill Watterson, untouchable. Um, <laughs> but, <clears throat> you know, he you get these episodes where he's like imagining mm -hmm. an alien, you know, push wanting to push his character, Spaceman Spiff, um, into this like lava pool. And you cut back to reality and you see it's his mother trying to get him into the bath. And then further you cut to reality where he's walking um, soaked in bath water and <laughs> Hobbes has some like stinger punchline to give to him. And you start to see that Hobbes is actually mapped to the real world. He's not, he's almost never in the imaginary space. He's never huh. in the dinosaur world. He's never in spaceman space, like not never, but he's, it's very, very uh, abundantly rare. And the only reason I'm saying that is because someone might contradict me. I have never, I could not remember for you a moment where mm. he's in the imagined. Because um, he's not. Um... This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. Already, I think there's, you know, just, let's take that alone on its, on its concept. This idea of watching this boy take on the subjective nature of his experience with the world that ought to be the world of the imagination and the world of reality, the world of his school and his bully mm -hmm. and his teacher and mm -hmm. that are drawn so very differently um, than the kind of the vivid, the beautiful. And then, and then contrast that with these moments of like silent, calm, contemplative beauty where he's on a wagon in the woods or in a sled in the, mm -hmm. On the snow, I don't know if there isn't a, a, a great deal to say about mm -hmm. the nature of consciousness. I don't, and I don't think I'm necessarily bringing that to a cereal box the way that maybe was really popular in the um, in the early aughts and in the '90s. It was really fun to be a social scientist mm -hmm. pretending that there was depth in like cereal commercials. And, um, and it was perfectly fine to, you know, it was just like, yeah. boy, if you wanted a book deal, just be like, uh, the, the Dow of, uh, Fruit Loops, uh, or like, um, you know, I'm a semiotician, but I only focus on, uh, you know, uh, the, the popcorn catalogs of the, uh, Jost, Jostens, mm -hmm. uh, company um stuff like that and you're just like mm -hmm. okay that's what deconstruction was it was yeah, to try to yeah. break this notion of the edifice of greatness right moby dick can only really be as good as like uh you know count chocula 
mm-hmm. and they're all we, we should give them equal permanence and somehow those people got tenure i don't know how but um, <laughs> i'm going I'm yeah going, we're going scandal a, here Just yeah like, no it, it's good it breaks i mean this is okay so this is this is my question then yeah um well i i the last the button on that i apologize to interrupt you is simply to say i i don't think this is that ironic um hyper attention to the trivial that and even on its face assessed by its own merits um which is to say assessed by what's only in the text mm-hmm. um i don't i i think there's there's a great deal more to it and i think it's harmed by that because it comes out of that context and not in the 90s scholarship mm-hmm. went to the arcade yeah okay so i, I want to go so many directions so one is do you think, so I've made this argument with film and with television, because I grew up where my dad had us analyze film. That was his medium. So I had to know all the best films of 1939, for example, or, you know, I had to know all these things about <laughs> film. Is it, but I've argued that like, in order for me to be able to analyze film or television that way, it comes from all the other great things I've read. So I can put them in conversation because of all the great books I've read, is that something that we are bringing to Calvin and Hobbes? Like it, or can it just stand on its own and be a conduit to the tradition or it can open itself up to that? Well, maybe I've misunderstood the question, but I think, I think yes, on its face, on its face, if I, I don't know any works that are so truly singular that they have no priors you know, mm-hmm. that they have no, and I don't mean that in terms of as an, as a concept of originality, but almost as a concept mm-hmm. of, you know, the greats, I think of the greats as these minds that are sitting at this campfire of the eternal and they're having, and they've been carrying on a yes. conversation. Yes. And if you've ever been in a room, I have, I've often been in a room where I'm the dumbest person and I, when the conversation turns to the heavy topics, I know to shut up. Like, I know that it's my role to listen. Like, I, I have just enough knowledge to know that whatever sentence is going to come out of my mouth is not going to be that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I select for the moments when, if I do have something to contribute, most of the time I just listen, right? Mm-hmm. I think across, across the time-space continuum of art, like, you know... Melville was trying to talk to his hero Hawthorne and Hawthorne mm-hmm. was trying to talk to his like they mm-hmm. were they were all having these conversations you get to you get to Shakespeare and the Greeks and you get mm-hmm. to you I mean the, these people are having a fireside chat mm-hmm. and there there is a and of course it's asymmetrical because the ones in the future have the asymmetry of speaking to the ones in the past but fundamental mm-hmm. replying but that's what I think makes greatness is it feels as though Shakespeare has replied to his detractors yes. and to yes. his to his fans even among you go i i don't know every time i read shakespeare he's replying to the people who came after him who mm-hmm. had no idea what mm-hmm. the heck he was saying <laughs> so you think calvin and hobbes can do that that's what i, I guess that's what oh, i'm asking yes. yeah absolutely. Yeah. i think i think calvin and hobbes sits i think i think it would take me you know there was a i wrote my thesis on a um original or a comic uh, artist by the name of George Harriman, who did Ignatz and Crazy Cat, which is from um, and, mm-hmm. and Dada, sort of an early edition, early example of American Dada. And the expats, you know, so Hemingway, Fitzgerald, uh, 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 Gertrude Stein, 
They were obsessed with this one comic strip called Ignat's Crazy Cat by George Harriman. Mm-hmm. And there's some really fun letters where uh, Gertrude Stein is like scolding uh, Hemingway for not <laughs> clipping and sending because they were in Europe um, and he was in the States. And like he wasn't doing his job of like clipping and sending. <laughs> and she's mad. And you go. So I have, you know, all, all that to say, like, I, there are people functioning in that space, the sort of what is perhaps thought of as the trivial daily comic strip. The comic mm-hmm. strip is even more trivial by certain standards than like the graphic novel, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there were people who built a body of work and did so on a daily basis. Like mm-hmm. the, 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 the difficulty level of what Watterson pulls off in a 10 year mm-hmm. period I mean, he'll tell you himself, literally shut his life down. Like he hasn't yeah. done anything since. And I am, you know, I, in my greatest dreams, I hope that he's, he is making things and he's got a great uh, fairy tale mm-hmm. story coming out this year. Um, but honestly, if you, if you had created Calvin and Hobbes over 10 years, I don't know if the entire toothpaste tube isn't spent at that point. Mm-hmm. I, that is the most impressive challenging output mm-hmm. i can imagine for that 10-year period while social scientists were goofing off and while novelists were doing like the scumbag era of let's see who can write new york it, uh the best and whoever whatever mm-hmm. sad marriages in brooklyn can be described this person was having a conversation with the greats um mm-hmm. so yeah I, I actually think he sits at the fireside i think very few people do do I think he's singular among them? No. Do I think everything should be interpreted if in terms of that greatness by yeah. virtue of what it says to those people? Yes, I also agree with that sentence. Um, and he was, he was doing this in an era where like, you might say Calvin and Hobbes, both in terms of the meta text, the story around the story, which um, we can get to because Watterson had mm-hmm. such an interesting relationship with the, even his own publisher and with the concept of commerce and merchandising, he had such a great, interesting relationship with that. Mm-hmm. And so did his comic strip that he might be, he might be the person who expressed the incoming corporate pablum, the wave of mm-hmm. what we might call refinement culture, just stuck culture death mm-hmm. like we we have a completely stuck culture at this point we've been and this yeah. is even a hard thing to note like we haven't had a famous we haven't had a musician become a superstar since taylor swift she happened she did mm-hmm. that when i was a kid but yeah. she's still the one and got you know respect to her films we know that about the sequelitis we know all this mm-hmm. we were stuck in 2008 mm-hmm. and have been for a long time this piece of art predicts that this piece of art presages exactly what's about to happen he sees it coming Mm -hmm. he sees Mm -hmm. it coming with his main competitor garfield Mm -hmm. um which was built to be a commercial merchandising you know like mega millions (laughs) kind of kind of object and he he's he's like can i read you know what can i read you a couple strips can i yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he i wonder if i how do i i only have it on my computer because i screen them but i you know what they're mostly text and it's mostly calvin so i'm gonna give you the audiobook edition for people who can't see and calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> yeah it's four it's four strips and they're him predicting what's going to happen to culture better than i mean as well as delillo did 
okay, in mm -hmm. my opinion. DeLillo, what, he nails it with what? End zone, I guess. He nails it with mm -hmm. white noise. White noise, yeah. Uh, here we go. So Calvin and Hobbes are just like goofing around with some uh, Play-Doh. They're sitting there and Calvin's doing his monologue and he says, fine art is dead, Hobbes. Nobody understands it. Nobody likes it. Nobody sees it. It's irrelevant in today's mm -hmm. culture. If you want to influence people, popular art is the way to go. Mass market commercial art is the future. Okay. Those are unbelievably true statements. Third yeah. frame. Besides, it's the only way to make serious money. And that's what's important about being an artist. So fourth frame Hobbes goes, so what kind of sculpture are you making? He says, please. It's not sculpture. It's collectible figurines. <laughs> Perfection of understanding yeah. what the heck is going on. He continues. I'm going to give you the next strip. He says, see, the problem with fine art is that it's supposed to express original truths. But who likes originality and truth? Nobody. Life's hard enough without it. Only an idiot would pay for it. But popular art knows the customer's always right. People want more of what they already know they like. So popular art gives it to them. Hobbes says, and how are the movie sequels this summer? <laughs> Great. Man, there's nothing I hate more than paying five bucks and having to deal with some new plot. <laughs> uh, this is, this yeah. is by the way, 16, 16 years before the Marvel Universe yeah. does everything. He, he, I mean, he is, lastly, okay, so I'm, I'm just Pathetic. a few more. He is. Uh, here's Hobbes. He's holding a little... Um, figurine of a tiger that he's been making this whole time it's beautiful and he says there i made a tiger that's no good says calvin who's going to buy something like that it's subtle it's boring it's incomprehensible how will they how will this now here's the line here's the line that you see him struggling with as an artist because he is in what is considered a commercial space he is in this trivial space but he wants to make things that are subtle that are perhaps incomprehensible and here's his his main character speaking this this line. This is this is straight up Prospero. He says, "How will this ever appeal to the lowest common denominator? It's completely unadaptable to merchandising yeah. tie-ins." And uh, Hobbes is, is sticking his tongue out at him, and he says, "Who cares? I just wanted to make it." Oh. And Calvin is furious. He says, "What is this? Some snobby elitist aesthetic thing?" <laughs> Last, last part. I'll leave you alone. This I part, love he, it. Calvin's taking that, that tiger, this is the end of the sequence, mm -hmm. to his mother, and he's holding up this tiger. Again, in the world of believing, if, if you're reading this as an imaginary experience for Calvin, he's the one who made the tiger. Mm -hmm. He's arguing with an imaginary Himself. tiger yeah. that yeah. he has made. And by the way, he's, so he's holding up this product this physical product that can't be denied is happening in reality his mother's looking at this tiger who made mm -hmm. it we don't see he's not Hobbes isn't there Hobbes, calvin is holding Hobbes's tiger and he says look at the dopey clay tiger Hobbes made look at that 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 is like shirley jackson mentioned like there's a moment <laughs> where the artist is what are they doing is this fishing for confirmation or you know confidence or is he is he apologizing for his own work? We don't know. Mm -hmm. we, let's not go there. Look at the dopey clay tiger Hobbes made, says Calvin. His mother's holding it. She's quite happy. She says, gee, Calvin, I think this is good. He says, you like it? Where's the marketability? She says, ask Hobbes if we can put it on the coffee table. Love this mom. She's so... <laughs> 
doing this great. Ask Hobbs if we can put it on the coffee table. He says, but look what I made. And he's holding up a tray full of those. And he says, look what I made. A hundred shrunken heads of popular cartoon characters. <laughs> uh, Jessica, there are billion dollar industries around yeah. shrunken heads of popular cartoon characters. That That is a literal thing. that he. <laughs> anyway, uh, that he pr- predicts. Look at the shrunken heads of popular cartoon characters. And she says, ew, you stitched their mouths shut? <laughs> what a weird non sequitur for her to say, right? Like, he stitched their mouths shut. I, all right, fine. Ew, you stick, <laughs> stitched their mouths shut. Here, Calvin, in the last frame, dejected, is going over to uh, Hobbes, who's very pleased with himself. Uh, and he says, gloat now, because someday I'll be a lot richer than you. <laughs> And Hobbes says, I call it Symphony in Orange, number one. And he's setting, <laughs> he's setting the tiger down on the table. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, whenever you see, have these moments, I mean, it, it feels, perhaps it's cynical. Perhaps here is this man who has some artistic aspirations in a world where he's being, people are demanding that he make plushies out of Hobbes and... Mm you know, calendars and just junk um, to sell. And he, I mean, I'm not kidding when I say, I don't know a single artist who left more money on the table than, than Mm. Bill Watterson, that it was a non insignificant number estimates easily, easily in the hundreds of millions. Like this is, Mm -hmm. this is a man who we're talking about. Someone handed him the scepter of the Pharaoh and he says, I don't want it. Right. Like that's the kind of influence and power and money he, leaves behind for this there's got to be something worthy of that trade Mm -hmm. and you look at those pieces where he's describing this this sort of like massively intertextual of the moment conversation around merchandising and it's not a it's not a cynical little half-hearted joke is it like our entire culture goes that direction for the next 30 years Mm -hmm. all of american output not all of all is hyperbolic but gosh darn it all of the most uh, influential, all the most powerful. God bless her. With respect, Harry Potter has a Disneyland ride. Yeah, right? as a Disneyland. Like, there's yeah. nobody who leaves more money on the table than Watterson, who decides to make more of an impactful investment in his, the meaning mm-hmm. of his own work. And unless we think he's an idiot, I do think there's something clearly there that has the depth required for him to want to do that. Because if it was just Garfield and even the Peanuts estate, the vaunted mm-hmm. and the great, you know, why aren't there the Dows of uh, uh, Susie Durkins just as there are the Dows of uh, Snoopy? Mm-hmm. And the answer is because he knew who he was talking to. <laughs> he wasn't mm-hmm. talking to these people. Well, one of my, lastly, you know, Calvin has this you know, famous kind of bit where he always dresses up as nothing for Halloween, but just wants to mm-hmm. stick it to the adults. He never, he never, um, he never dances for the adults ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a line where someone asks him who he is and he goes, I'm yet another resource consuming kid in an overpopulated planet raised to an alarming extent by Madison Avenue in Hollywood, poised with the cynical, poised with my cynical and alienated peers to take over the world when you're old and weak. <laughs> and he goes, the when you're old and weak is delightful. Um, Clearly, Calvin, I think, has a lot to say. It is, you know, it is a, yes, it is a misanthropic Mm -hmm. hero. 
he is he's he's kind of our Ignatius Riley. Um, yeah, you know, when nice. that came out, by the way, yeah, that might be a good case. I might give Confederacy of Dunces a good a nod for the post Hobbes. No, was that nineteen eighties? Eighties. Yeah, mm, depending on when in the eighties, we'll give it. Well, I think it's uh, nineteen eighty. So. Is it? Then he squeezes yeah. in before, even yeah. more to my theory. Um, <laughs> Calvino is a great one, of course, died in 1985, mm. which is why this thesis makes me so happy. Um, <laughs> because, you know, it goes out with him. But, um, but yeah, I guess I mean, what I was trying to answer, and it's a broad question, and so I hope you'll excuse the length of the answer, was, is he speaking to the greats? Is he mm-hmm. even pointed in that direction? I think both from the metatextual assessment of how much he asserted the desire to speak to them. So at the mm-hmm. very least, we see here a creator who's not interested in speaking only to the market. Mm-hmm. And in, I think, the, the sheer clarity of voice of Calvin mm-hmm. trying to speak to it in the comic. So in and outside of the comic, I think you have to say he's at least, he's at least sitting there and raising his hand politely. Um, I think, you know, in the non-linear time, I think the Melvilles and the, of the world would have plenty to uh, listen to and would have and would have respected the work. What do I know? I don't know these people. I, I'm just spouting <laughs> off. But um, uh, yeah, that would be that would be the claim to that answer. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I, I mean, I wish we would get to spend like the next 30 minutes talking more, but we, <laughs> I think you've proven your case and given okay. credence to this. <laughs> and well, and for me personally, you, you don't really have to convince me. I am all about not dividing the lowbrow from the highbrow, or in this case, the pop culture from the literary culture. The questions I would want to ask more of are, you know, how much do you have to give in in order to make your world work popular? Because if no one reads your great literary work, how much effect does it have? And, you know, these are some of the questions that I would. Well, okay. Let me ask you, that's an interesting point. Like another, I mean, another way to look at this thesis is to say books have gotten so stupid that Mm. something like Calvin and Hobbes is our high watermark and the high watermark of an entire 40 year window is at least worth discussing. I'm not against that. If we want to say that, I'm not against that either because, you know, to say, I'm, un, you know, it's it's pretty unimpressive. It's pretty unimpressive what we've managed to to make um, compare comparatively. Yeah, I suppose the ugly, more aggressive version of the thesis is that, and mm-hmm. so we can bring it down to Calvin. I like to think Calvin has ascended to a great height and mm-hmm. deserves that kind of accolade, but. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, if, yeah. if novels have been bending over, you know, just bending over to wallow in the mud, um, then okay, then this little well, thing as high as a footstool is still higher. That's fine, too. Well, <laughs> it also, I mean, I think there's, I think there's also the question about the proliferation, like you've been in publishing, you've been in the industry. Chris Wyman says this, too, about poetry. When you have so many it's hard to find the one that's going to affect everyone. Or even people talk about, um, you know, I love Lucy. Everyone watched only that. And that's why it had such an effect. Right. Um, Bill Watterson kind of changed the game by having the whole page. And so everyone saw that everyone, you know, um, he, in, in some ways he made 
the industry what he wanted his art to be able to do. Like he did that. Whereas right now, where we are with novels, is that even possible? Like, can the current popular market sustain an amazing literary novel that's going to be changing, breaking down ideology and, you know, changing people's minds and paradigms? And um, it just doesn't seem oh, like it professor. would have... That effect. Like, I don't think it's possible. Of course not. Of course not. I mean, I look, the, the, uh, the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a stat. I mean, if I had to trot this one out, you, you, you should feel free to, yeah, uh, uh, push back it. But if, you, you know, if we had, I think the stat I would have to trot out would be, um, you know, in this period, the best selling novel of, of this, the period that we're talking about, the post, uh, it would be Fifty Shades of Grey. Do you, do you want to know what the oh. second best selling novel? Fifty Shades of Grey 2. Do you want to know the third best-selling novel? No way. Fifty Shades of Grey 3. Yeah. In the two in the ten in the decade of two thousand what is when did the decade it came out? Those were the three top by far. Oh my gosh. Because I mean I think when I think 1985, I am a professor. I think 1985, 1995, I start thinking beloved. I think Cormac McCarthy. Like I think of all the literary output, but you're right, it doesn't have the same appeal because no one's buying it like these right. you know mccarthy wasn't we're selling Lucy. <laughs> yes yeah and and i didn't mean sorry the window of time it was the post i was you know which would be yeah. when it came out 2010 to 2020 so in the yeah, last decade yeah. that that's what we've been up to one two and three um yeah. and so yeah it's it's pretty easy a claim to make now as you said of course the scholars of the world the literary spaces sure have been have been producing um producing things um that's fine too you know mm -hmm. um there's a thing i sort of say about what i think the movie space is in sometimes which is that they, it feels like it's following the book world about 40 years mm. behind in terms of its mm -hmm. its experience so I'll, I'll quickly this is broad strokes but the book world the book culture you know when you look at the sort of the, let's go to the expats let's go to that sort of this era of like um Everything from Fitzgerald, but even like, let's go to Steinbeck, right? Steinbeck mm -hmm. is a guy, he, he's, you know, and, you know, there's these, this the era of what we might call the great novelist. Um, a new book's going to come out once a year, you know, or, or so. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it's going to come with quite a lot of hoopla. Like here's, here's Steinbeck's next. And if you go to a party, the thing to talk about is, did you read it? Did you read mm -hmm. it or didn't you? It's fun to talk about in the same way that nowadays, you know, we talk about like, what are you watching these days? Oh, I'm watching yeah. Mad Men, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the 70s, 80s, 90s, and this is what becomes of the, the mass market era. So the era of the great writer sort of isn't marked by one every so often, and then everyone should talk about it, but is rather about, here's a writer, they have a lane. And they're just going to give you three books a year on this topic. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get to mass read it. It's binge era for books, right? Yeah. That's your Stephen King's. That's your, um, your Danielle Steele's, um, your Crichton's later on, mm -hmm. your Clancy's. They, they have a lane and they just, they're going to pump it out. So they're owning yeah. a genre. They're owning a thing. And you're going to binge read. Great. Books. And let's take the movies real quick. But they're, they're ahead. So in the 90s, you have this era, the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s. When we're doing mass, they're doing the great directors, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, Jurassic Park's going to come out, and there's yeah. going to be featurettes uh, in your, on your TV about it coming out. It's Spielberg's next. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Of course, the 70s auteur era. You have this happening, and it's you. everybody is going to the theater to watch Jurassic mm -hmm. Park. That's what to talk about. That's how Star Wars happens, right? Anyway. 
now we get into the new era of the creators. They're going to Netflix. They're, you know, what's her, Shonda Rhimes right. is what, if not the most successful of her generation, she owns, she does Grey's Anatomy. She does, golly, I don't, I don't know the names of some of the others, Scandal, um, and then a bunch of shows for um, Netflix. What are they? They're, well, they're bodice rippers. They're really good mm-hmm. setup setups that she's the Daniel Steele of her generation, if you want to say it, mm-hmm. whatever you want to say, but it's built on, she makes a lot of shows. She puts yeah. you as a creator, it's all about, you know, and you have other, you have other creators we can talk about whose jobs it is to um, make a lot of material for us to binge on. And I mean, Christian, best- Christian publishing, you sign two books at a time, not one so that you have, there you go. Your lane. Yeah. So then you go back to the novel and you say, okay, well then if TV is caught up to the binge era of books and novels, where did novels lead the way into? And once again, they didn't. They led directly into a brick wall, which Mm. then Calvin and Hobbes uh, led into the visual age. I can name you, by the way, dozens of graphic Mm -hmm. novels that are Mm -hmm. in the era of greatness because so we wouldn't have nearly the trouble you know, as we, as we have right now with just trying to name, you know, great, great. And I hope people mm-hmm. won't write to you and say, Hey, this dummy doesn't know uh, <laughs> about, you know, uh, David James Duncan or, you know, whatever. N- name a great, like I get it. There are, there are, there's, there's little G greats. I'm talking about, um, and you know, I'm talking about like 500 years. I'm talking about, you know, mm-hmm. so that's, or that's the greats, all. the greats that are also popular. I mean, I think that's what you're touching on with Calvin and Hobbes. The greats that are also popular sure. are hard to come by, especially with novels. Whereas in the '60s, everybody yeah. was reading novels. Novels were how you talk to people, and yeah. uh, that's just not at all where we are anymore. So when I would, when I was in publishing and I wanted to make myself sad, just from some sort of weird, uh, you know, personal language dis- uh, perspective, mm-hmm. um, I would just read the bestseller list from like 1975. Mm-hmm. It's, it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Uh, it's a real, yeah. So a whole lot of really good books. Um, yeah. You know, and go back to Tolkien. Like, yeah, he was a bestseller. He was a bestseller. Somehow this dude who spends five paragraphs describing a hillock. Mm-hmm. And knows more about like topography of like copses and bosks and yeah. uh what and you're just like i have to google oh that's a little yeah. angle coming off of it this man was obsessed with maps and was writing deeply about spiritual topics uh mm-hmm. but was selling like hotcakes yeah because yeah because it was um you know, and we can trot out that old phrase, like true genius is, you know, he and in modern days, we'd say, of course, he and she, uh, who can speak to the masses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's a hard one. Because again, in the 90s, we destroyed that concept. And we decided that anyone who was speaking to the masses might be genius. And that's not true. Either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's scary when you flip those that phrase around. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. just talk to the masses. No, buddy. Yeah. Uh, that's not what we meant. We meant to elevate. We meant yes. like, you know, the mass market paperback is my favorite format of a book. Here's, here's a Terry Pratchett. This is the greatest way. This is the perfect mm-hmm. form. You know mm-hmm. why? It fits into a Pico. Yes. And that's actually yes. why it was built. Also, it smells yeah. nice. Uh, <laughs> the, reason, the reason it was built into a Pico was because it was built out of this notion. The publishers wanted the quite literally what they envisioned as like the mm-hmm. longshoreman, the blue collar 
individual who's wearing yeah. a pea coat to work, they could have access to the greats. And that's why mm -hmm. you look in the 80s and the 70s and you've got mass market paperback editions of yes. Steinbeck, of Three Musketeers, of name a classic and there's a yeah. mass market edition. Jump mm -hmm. forward and tell me why don't we have mass market editions of Donna Tartt? Why don't we have mm -hmm. mass market editions of like David Foster Wallace, um, Karen mm -hmm. Ross, the greats of our mm -hmm. current moment? Mm -hmm. uh, Toni Morrison, you said they aren't even in mass market paperback. Yeah, people it's aren't not reading even them. Yeah, that that's what's going to happen. Um, and that's why, by the way, it's the best thing to do at a used bookstore: find mass market paperback editions of classics. Yeah. Um, but because they'll be gone. This is this is mm -hmm. such a wonderful uh, thing. It'll fit into your coat. You can go to work, so to speak. You can put it in your uniform. You can read it anywhere. Yeah. And that's where these things are. Like when we really think about what Shakespeare is good for, Shakespeare is good in the foxhole. Yeah. Shakespeare will will is good in a foxhole. Yes. You will. Yes. And I, you, I don't know if I'm grabbing for anyone else but i'll tell you what if i threw calvin and Hobbes right now into a foxhole i know yeah. what would happen i know what would happen <laughs> okay so as as we as we wrap up let's not wrap up with um the negative Mad or, okay yeah. yeah yeah so everything sad is untrue so can you yeah. can you wrap the up with, right jessica yeah there and and something you know realistically hopeful i i don't believe in false optimism but where sure. where's the hope that we can end with well i don't yeah i mean it, it, there's only reason that would be hopeless is if you think stories are somehow owned by novels oh you know, perfect the novels are owned i mean the novel format what begins with don quixote in 1600s I mean, I, the case I think I, I yeah. see a lot is that was the first novel kind of comes Zenith comes into right. Zenith. We have, we have people like Jane Austen. We have people like Mary Shelley. And then we, of course we have, we keep going. We have people like the expats, Steinbecks and we, and we have Calvino, we have Borges, we have Gabriel yeah. Garcia Marquez. Like we've got, so there's, the, there's no hope for novels, but you're saying there's hope outside of the novel. I mean, I think great novels will be written. I'm not also the arbiter. Any great novelist right now could just be like, who's that guy? And, mm -hmm. uh, and keep writing their great novels. So I just mean to say there is great, this, we, the storytelling animal, yes. will yeah. forever be telling them in podcast form, in awesome. fil film, in TV, in, in graphic novels, in comics. Uh, there's, so many, there's so many great stories to tell. And as, as before, you know, if, it's like saying, will there be another great banjo player? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there will totally be yeah. another great banjo player. Yeah. But what is the heyday of the great banjo players? Um, if, you, if you wanted to find it, would you probably have to look backward? Yeah, but that doesn't mean there won't be one and there won't be some prodigies and... I'm excited about all of it. I, I, yeah. keep, I read novels constantly. I read, so I, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of great work. And the proliferation yeah. of it implies the need for more of what I would call the critical class, the critic class, the use of the world who are out there going, I would like to find those things um, because the finding will be the challenge. The present, it will never, you can never bet against the universe. Don't ever yeah. say something isn't or something you know, that's nuts. It's for sure is. <laughs> like, it's out there. There's someone who's working at, like, Coat Check at the Strand Bookstore who is currently... The best novel, by the way, I've read in the last 30 years, the best novel is unpublished by a man named Hal Johnson. I tried desperately to publish it. Um, it's, you know, 1,500 
pages and it's it's brilliant. I adore it. Mm. Um, And he, you know, so never bet against there's somewhere in a hard drive somewhere um, or a coat closet. It exists. Um, And a million other great stories exist as well. And the glory of our, you know, of this current experience is that we can speak to one another and, um, and maybe find, interesting conversations to have so no i I would never consider this a sad story i just also i just wanted to throw some rocks i was like let's let's go to this civilized space (laughs) professor wilson uh newly minted i'm not even allowed to say uh doing the thing taking the the academic world by storm let me come in here and like take some of the class out of the joint see what see what we can say well Um, thank you for scandalizing us because (laughs) This has been a really interesting conversation to have, and I could keep talking to you forever, but I know that our time is up. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. And I hope everyone also goes out and buys everything says untrue because it is by far the best book I've read this year. So. Oh, goodness. Thank you. Thank but you for not, writing not it. Not that good. Not that good. Like kind of just, it's okay. Good. Not even it's small, like, small G great. I think it, I think it's going to last. I it's think it's the Cocoa last. Puffs of its era. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Okay, so we're gonna stop there. <laughs> Thank you. I um This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.